Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at Signalfire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Garrett Makura, co-founder and CEO of Pipe Dream Labs, a company building a network of underground tubes that offers near instantaneous delivery of objects to and from houses and businesses. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am exceptionally interested in chatting with you because of any company I've heard in a while, this one to me truly feels like one of the biggest swings I've seen and just so freaking awesome. So I noticed that you were a mechanical engineer, which I was as well. So I'm curious, did you grow up building things? How did you get interested in mechanical engineering? Yeah, I totally grew up building things. And it was more, I grew up with this like love for, I, I didn't grow up with like this understanding of, of startups or entrepreneurship or, or business. Um, but like I always heard these stories about people who would build things and then people liked what they built so much that they gave them money for it. And that was like the coolest, like <laughs> I, I could possibly imagine. And it's just like my whole life was as a kid, I was like, okay, I want to build things so cool that someone gives me money for them. That's like, that was like my, my art. Um, and so when I went, went to college, I was like, okay, I want to build things and sell them. So what do you need to do to make that happen? You need to learn to build them first. <laughs> to me, that was like the logical conclusion. So I went as a mechanical engineer, um, but realized pretty quick uh, through my mechanical in- engineering uh, career in college uh, that I got that flipped. Um, I-, I read a couple of Paul Graham essays, kind of went into uh, entrepreneurship, read a lot of books and realized, oh, no, you really need to like learn how to sell things first before you build them. That's the way that you make great businesses. Um, so I went through mechanical engineering, uh, and then kind of ejected myself, uh, after I graduated and didn't get an engineering job right out of college. Um, so I haven't really done like an engineering career since college. Um, but, uh, I, I draw back to it all the time, no, no matter what I'm doing. It's funny. I think of my graduating class, over 90% of us did not end up actually practicing mechanical engineering. Most people find something different. And to your point, you know, I think um, there's an adage, especially in the VC world, that first-time founders think that product wins and second-time founders know that distribution wins. And yeah. it's so true. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, do you feel like, uh, I, I, we talk about this all the time, um, you know, until lately, most of the people at Pipedream were mechanical engineers, even in other like business and like more business oriented positions. Um, do you feel like mechanical engineering as a degree, like gives you a set of skills that applies generally to anything? I do. I think it has a mix of being very practical, being analytical, but being creative. You, know, you have yeah. to work within constraints of the physical world, which is much harder than working with just software. Uh, but I think that forces you to be creative in different ways, but also very practical. And I think having that analytical background, having the curiosity to go and put things out there and to actually build, I think uh, really works well. The business piece is the one area that I think people have to learn separately. I don't feel like I personally got a lot of those skill sets studying mechanical engineering. Not sure about you. 
Yeah, I, I think not really. I, I think like the law, like studying mechanical engineering, at least for me, was like uh, forced me to like think from first principles. And I think like thinking from first principles did help on the business side. Uh, but then there's just stuff like, yeah, you've got to learn on your own. It's like experience based business stuff and then finances and stuff like that. So not really. But I, I yeah, the, the problem solving aspect of it is I like... Part of me sometimes wishes I just didn't go to college and just started building businesses right away. But I am glad that I got uh, a little technical experience and also like just learned the the problem solving framework of mechanical engineering. So I think all in all, I wish it didn't take four years, but net positive. <laughs> totally. I, I often have the exact same thought. Well, it seems like even from right after you graduated, you've always been kind of interested in bleeding ed- edge tech stuff. So what have you been following in terms of trends with robotics, with you know changes in AI, technologies like that? What um, What's kind of kept you interested? Yeah, uh, lately or, or right out of college? I guess uh, your career over time, it seems like, you know, you went into um, more like biomechanical, which is what I had studied on like the prosthetic side, which is again, super cool, but also very, um, you know, bleeding edge tech. So what, what gets you excited? Yeah, I, I think like any, anything that creates um, new types of businesses. So I, I, AI is definitely something, um, especially recently, like it's kind of like eerie. We talk about it all, all the time here, we, we got access to Dolly and it's like, it's tough to it's it's like we live in a new era. There's like the time before Dolly 2 and then the time after. And it's like that and GPT-3 and, and just those those fundamental building blocks that are going to allow people to build new businesses off of those. Um, that's always gets, gets us excited. I, I think coming out of college, what I realized is I, I think like going into college, I kind of always thought of myself as like this component creator. Like I want to be the person who makes the Lego um, that other people, uh, use. Um, and then I realized like, oh, we're kind of past that. There are so many Legos. There's just a, an overabundance of Legos. And really there's a lack of, uh, Lego builders, people who can put things together. Um, and what's interesting is like, I, like a lot of what's happening right now is like we created the, the, the fundamental Legos. And then now people are, are putting together like base level components with those Legos that other people can use to, to make more things. So like, that's the interesting piece. And like right out of college, that's what I realized is, um, you know, you're, you're only like a couple Google searches away from building whatever you want. Um, I, the, the backstory is like, I came out of college and I was like, okay, I'm not going to get an engineering job. Instead, I want to just uh, learn business by doing. And uh, if I've got to make my rent every month by, you know, building businesses, like I'm probably going to like force myself to get pretty good at it. Um, and, and that's when I realized like, oh, if you want to build literally anything right now, you are a Google search or two away from doing it. That's when I learned bubble, the no code software built a lot of like SaaS apps. That's where a lot of the money came from, <laughs> um, which is building bubble apps. Um, it was like 2017. Um, but that, that's really, that, that really like is the common thread, um, through my career is just looking at, oh, like what are, what are the ways that you can put together, um, Lego pieces to make something that helps people. Um, I, I did take, uh, uh, I, I, out of college, I was consulting in R&D just because I love prosthetics. I mean, it sounds like you do too. Like I've always wanted to do something in prosthetics. So it was good to like, check that box, but I was doing R&D for a prosthetic startup. Um, and then that's kind of where I was doing all my stuff. I, I would do R&D for them like one to two days a week, uh, which was like the funnest time of my entire career. Um, I was like living so cheaply and like, I didn't need money. I could just like do whatever I wanted. I'd like infinite time. It was great. Uh, 
And then what I realized is like, I'm not like taking a big bet. Like I'm not like building anything that can scale. I've learned a lot, but it's not, it, it wasn't like super calculated. It was like very reactionary stuff. Um, so coming out of, uh, like coming out of that, uh, the prosthetic company asked me to come on to run biz dev full time. Um, they were going through a pivot, uh, that I was helping them with and, and kind of asked me to come on to help manage that pivot all the way through. Um, and so I was like, okay, that's an interesting opportunity to learn to take a company that's scaling and, and learn how to grow it. Um, but then also it gives me time to shut down everything I'm doing and take two years to really like diligence and opportunity and take a really big bet. Like the, the idea was like, take two years to decide what to do for the next 10 years of my life. Um, so that was kind of, that's kind of how I got into prosthetics and did that. It was super fun, but uh, it was just kind of like an incubation period to take a step back and like stop making stuff and just like, what is the one thing I want to make? Well, I love that you're taking a huge swing. My husband and I always joke that once we make a lot of money, we're going to go and build the holodeck together. And like, that is going to be our <laughs> big swing. But you know, yeah. like I respect people who are like, no, 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 I'm doing it now. I'm not waiting until, you know, I have like comfort in my life. Uh, I want to jump right into what you guys are doing at Pipe Dream because this is like truly one of the most freaking cool ideas I've ever seen. So walk me through what is the idea? How did you come about it? And then uh, we'll get into some nitty gritty of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I can give you like the, the real quick two minute, like how we got here, what we're doing. Um, essentially, it was like during that two years, uh, that I was looking at, you know, what do I want to do for the next 10 years of my life? It's like, okay, what is that industry um, that is going to be really big 10 years from now that we can be early on now? Uh, and last mile logistics was uh, the thing that we saw as in 2030, it's going to be a, a huge thing. Um, but also like it, it's, it's, it's the part of the internet that really is the most annoying. It's like you can do anything with software. And as soon as you got to move something across the city from one place to another, it's so expensive and like there's people involved and it's logistically complicated and it takes forever. And that really like slows down what you can build online. And like there's you know, box subscriptions are trying to get around that. Um, D2C tries to get around that. But really what you get down to is it's so expensive to ship something. Um, and so we, we, we saw that as like something that uh, is going to be a huge theme of the next decade. And so we were like, okay, last mile logistics, great opportunity. It's where my heart is. I bleed. I love logistics. I've always been a huge fan of companies in the space and, and just research them obsessively. Um, so if we're going to take a 10 year shot at last mile logistics, like where's last mile logistics going? Like what, what is the you know tech tree that, that it's following? Um, and that's when we like kind of like charted it all the way to the end. We're like, all right, where last mile logistics is headed, uh, ultimately to teleportation, you know, at some point it gets like so fast that it's just instantaneous, but what's on this side of it? Um, and the analogy that we use a lot is internet, you know, internet is like near teleportation level data transfer. It's great. Like, I don't know, you could be anywhere in the world right now and we're having like the latency is quick enough that like we're having a conversation. It's like, maybe it could be a little better. And if we started teleporting that data, this might be, you know, 10%, 20% better, but it wouldn't blow our minds. Like it's got into that near teleportative state. Um, and so we were asking, you know, what is teleportation probably centuries off but what's on this side of teleportation such that like it does all the the, the pieces of teleportation all, all the benefits um but you can you can make it possible with current tech um and and we didn't have a name for it at the time but we we had like a set of specs we're like okay you can reach that when um you can deliver something in a city to another place in a city in single digit minutes for 
like cheap enough cost, somewhere like 20, 30 cents, right? Um, and just as easy as you can receive from the network, you can send back out. Um, and we ended up naming that later on. We call it hyperlogistics now. That's like that state. But what was interesting about that state and what really like pilled us uh, on, on building towards that is when you can reach that state, there's not this big emphasis on ownership anymore um, because you're able to have something delivered in about the amount of time that it takes you to go find it in your home. And you can also send it back super easy. Well, now you don't need to own all this stuff in your home or your business because uh, we essentially just own that stuff for convenience, right? Like I'm going to, similar to how the internet was in like the early 90s with like lower download speeds and uh, uh, lower upload speeds is like, oh, I don't want to like have to like re-download this movie every time I want to watch it. So I'm just going to buy it and download it and save it on my hard drive. You know, we use our last mile logistics systems in the same way. I'm going to buy something. I'm going to bring it to my home. I'm going to store it in a shelf. That way it's there. Um, so what's interesting about getting to hyperlogistics is you can uh, buy something, uh, have it sent to you, use it, and then when you're done with it, just send it back. Um, and what really got us so excited about that world is, one, all the businesses you can build on top of that. But two, uh, you know, you can satiate the world's need for this constant consumerism and, like, all this stuff that we need with way, way less resources, right? You don't need to build you – know, you don't need to – uh, create t-shirts for everyone to have 20, 30 t-shirts. Um, you just need to make enough t-shirts, uh, so that everyone can use one when they need it. Um, so, you know, we can consume just as much without consuming as many resources, uh, to, for the same level of consumerism. And so we got like, Oh, that's so interesting. We got to like build towards that. And so like, to this day, that's the goal is like, we want to reach that state by 2030. Um, and that's where we started. So it was, that was the goal. We didn't have a tech solution yet, but we're like, that's what we should be trying to do by 2030. Um, we initially started in drones because we had a huge drone bias. We had done a drone project before me and my co-founder. He had his master's degree in um, uh, essentially unmanned drones. And we're like, oh, drones are the answer. We're going to do this. It's going to be great. Like we're super competent and we already have like most of the, you know, the computer vision software. Like we, we already got a head start on that. Um, then we, as we were running the numbers on the business side, we realized, oh man, drones are not going to get us to this state. Um, they need a ground-based counterpart that can be high speed, high volume, and high safety in cities um, that can also solve the first and last inch problem. And we looked around uh, from a ground-based perspective for a little bit and just like banging our heads against the wall, like sidewalk robots, self-driving cars, like maybe something on a rail, um, it was just like, it was just so hard to find something that could meet all those, uh, specifications. Uh, and that's when we asked ourselves, okay, how do cities do this with other stuff? And there's a long history of, uh, you know, other ubiquitous utilities like pushing underground or like, okay, that sounds crazy, but should we just try it? Should we just try, uh, see if it works? Um, if it, it felt like it was going to be too, way too expensive and way too much of a regulatory hurdle. Um, but then... Uh, when we went and we diligenced it, we realized, oh, no, this is really doable as long as you're careful about how you build the system. Uh, so that's where we uh, we started looking at underground. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of, you know, we, we've been on a path ever since then. <laughs> Can you describe the um, everyone should check out uh, Garrett's Twitter because he has some really cool diagrams of what it's going to look like. But can you describe for everyone what the actual system is going to look like in terms of the tubes and the, the payload and the little, uh, you know, little motor car thing? Yeah, totally. 
Um, so I think like a lot of times people think that we're doing something pneumatic, kind of like um, a bank tube where you have air pressure uh, and it's like a, a vacuum and it's sucking the payload through the tube, um, which is cool. And that's like definitely the best way to do it. Uh, the problem is, is that when you're building this on a city scale, you really want to make sure that you're reducing the install cost as much as possible. Um, the cheaper this is to put in, that's really your barrier to scale. Um, so for us, we, we decided to offload all of the costs into the individual pods themselves and make the infrastructure you're putting in as cheap as absolutely possible. Hmm. Um, so uh, the, the pipe that we're using is just standard utility pipe. Uh, cities know how to put it in. It's, it's, it exists in abundance. We, we never have a problem ordering it. We don't have to create any of that infrastructure. Uh, regulations exist to put it in easily. Um, it's just very normal infrastructure cities are used to dealing with. And then we have what is essentially like an electric RC car rolled up in a burrito. It's, uh, <laughs> which is like, that was probably the biggest misstep we made. We thought, oh, that's going to be so easy to make just an RC car that works in a pipe. You just add a third wheel and you're good to go. Um, it is actually a little harder than that. Um, but they're just electric vehicles. Um, they use the, the walls of the pipe to, to move. Uh, and then there's also a, a rail system. If they ever need to come out of the pipe and, and move around, uh, they can transfer on the rail. Um, and then those go underground. And then there's a, a portal system, um, which is essentially just an elevator that pulls the package from those underground pipes up to the surface and stores it for uh, the person delivering. Um, the, the goal is to, to ship it all the way to homes and businesses, get all the way out to the ends, uh, and have a complete system someday. But right now we're just focused on moving things from district to district in cities, kind of like a subway system. So we'll have these portals, um, every half mile or so in a city, uh, so that, um, we just make the intra-city uh, logistics faster and cheaper, uh, mainly cheaper. <laughs> it's so crazy how expensive it is. Like, if you need to order like a six count of chicken nuggets from McDonald's, um, like a human being in a two ton car goes and picks it up, puts it in their driver's seat and then drives it all the way to you. Uh, so it's like make, making that experience a lot cheaper is, is our first goal. Well, and it might cost $2 to buy those chicken nuggets and then 15 extra dollars for delivery and tax and tip and God knows what. Um, I refuse to do delivery for the most part because I'm very cheap. <laughs> the grand vision is so freaking cool of having essentially like a drawer in your house where things just show up automatically. And you said before that the uh, regulatory piece seemed like it would be a hurdle, but actually isn't as bad as you expected. What did you discover there? That to me was the immediate thing of like, oh God, state and local governments suck. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, this is something that we have not, uh, I, I think from a, like, because this is so, this is done on a city level, um, the the sample size that, that we have access to is probably not big enough to, to make a grand sweeping generalization. Um, but I think the stigma for us was, oh, well, we know how state and local government is. Um, it's very hard to build things. And it takes a super long time to permit and, and, and get your permits approved. Um, but what we have discovered from, um, again, our small sample size that we should not draw uh, grand sweeping generalizations over, but um, is that there's really like two types of permitting in a city. There's stuff that's above ground and stuff below ground. And what happens below ground is a lot easier to permit because um, the city uh, has those easements. 
Um, you know, you're paying them for it. So they're making revenue and, and that becomes a, a good part of the city's revenue is uh, renting out those easements. Um, so there's a good alignment and incentives there. Uh, so when we go to um, cities, we again, we've only done this process all the way through once and, and talked to uh, several other cities just to verify that the process is similar. Um, but when we go to the cities, it, it was a, a, in Georgia, it took us a week to get our permits. Um, after submitting uh, our proposal. Um, so uh, we had always like earmarked it at six months. <laughs> That's amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just a different world than like, uh, it, it's almost, um, you know, uh, it's, I think it's a scarcity thing where when you're getting something above ground, it's like you have limited land and also like, uh, there's all these building considerations, but going underground, since we're putting in the same pipe as other utilities, uh, there's aren't special considerations. It's just, just a normal pipe. Like they always put in, um, they've done it thousands and thousands of miles in a city. Um, and, uh, no one's ever going to see that it's, it's not, uh, it's not scarce land, um, as much as it is above ground, uh, so yeah, it's it's been really interesting. I I still think we're wary of that, um, but it, it's been ten x easier than we thought it'd be. What um what happens when one of the robots breaks or needs maintenance? Or I, I assume you said RC. So are they battery operated? Uh, they're battery operated. Yeah, um, yeah. It, there's like two types of failure modes. Uh, there's if something goes catastrophically wrong. Uh, like, um, you know, something lodges in the pipe and, and uh, a pod runs into it and, and ex like, breaks. Um, there's that failure mode that's a catastrophic one. And there's the non-catastrophic, which is just, like, there's a system failure or a firmware issue or it lost power. The, the second one, uh, we always, no matter what uh, system architecture we're using, we always make sure that if, if that failure mode happens... Uh, a pod can just come up behind it and push it out so that there's no uh, wheel lock or there's no like engine lock. It, it, as long as you have enough torque to, to push that, that pod through, um, you can just push it off to the next exit point and get it out of the system. Um, and then the second one is catastrophic. Uh, what we're looking at now is, is that we just need a, we need a, a bruiser pod that is essentially like a, a street sweeper and just has a giant broom on the front and can just, you know, bull rush debris out of the pipe. <laughs> um, that's probably the one that's going to need the most testing. Uh, but, you know, right now, you know, we're, we're making all the pods out of as much metal and stainless steel and making them really robust um, to make sure that that catastrophic method uh, happens uh, as small of a fraction of a time as possible. Um, the good news is, is that because we're pushing uh, you know, since we've got the, the uh, infrastructure as cheap as we have, we have a lot of wiggle room to make those pods um, pretty expensive. So we, we can make those really robust. Uh, and because they're moving so quickly through the network, um, you don't need that many pods to do a high number of deliveries. How do you not clog up the pods? I was just thinking about this, like, how would I do this? And it feels like, you know, you'll have a limited number of pipes at, at you know, at any city yeah. or at any scale. How do you not have things running into each other and clogging up, especially as the demand gets higher for the deliveries? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, there, there's a there's an algorithm we have where you want the uh, when you hit the the limit of what you can 
like your your uh, the volume you can send through the pipe, you want to be making enough money that building a second pipe is like a no brainer. And you kind of want to mm. cross over that point when you're at like fifty percent capacity. That way, you can you can suffer the the time um, to build out the second um, uh, pipe there. Uh, and, and add capacity to the network. Um, but it, it, it's crazy how much volume you can send through a pipe. Um, because the, the pods, uh, you know, there's, there's not that many variables underground. There's really just like, I'm going forward, I'm slowing down, I'm like decelerating, and I don't run into the thing in front of me. <laughs> so you can run them uh, pretty close together. Um, you know, a, a pod's length uh, distance between them is kind of what we theorize is like the maximum amount that you can um, run together. Uh, and um, so, so uh, I don't, I don't have the number on hand, but uh, way more volume than you would think. We always have to go back and run the numbers and be like, man, can we really like handle that much volume? Um, the real, the the bottleneck actually happens uh, before you run out of space in the pipe. You run into bottlenecking in the uh, input-output stations. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly you can load the pod and unload a pod uh, far before you you run out of room uh, from a volume standpoint. And are you going to need humans to actually load and unload the pods for the foreseeable future? No, no. So everything that happens underground, uh, loading the pods, um, that happens autonomously. Um, we, you know, we we do out of the gate. We are going to have. Uh, if you're a gig driver and, and you're utilizing this, you would put it into, it's kind of like an ATM. It uh, looks like an ATM that you put the package into and then it it shuts a door and then it handles everything from there. Um, so all that happens uh, automatically. And then eventually what we want to do uh, kind of in phase three after we build out an initial network in a city is start to utilize sidewalk robots and self-driving cars and drones and, and use those stations as pick up and drop off points between those modalities and, and have uh, automatic transfers uh, in between all those different modalities. I think, you know, uh, when you'd be able to turn a city completely autonomous, like, you know, people say a lot of different things, but it's probably in the tw- late 2030s at some point. But I think with this system, since a lot of it's underground and you remove a lot of the safety concerns uh, going across the city, I think between that and self-driving cars and drones and sidewalk robot, I think you could turn a city autonomously in the next like five to eight years. Uh, aggressive, a lot of stuff's got to play out, but uh, that's that's the hope. What are your general thoughts on the sidewalk robots, the roving robots? Uh, I think they, um, you know, I think it, it's kind of an interesting time in logistics automation. Uh, cause you, like, you can say, I mean, people can say all sorts of stuff about us and like why we won't work and why we don't make any sense and they'd probably be right. And they're probably wrong. And I think that's true for all the others. Cause it's just like delivering stuff in cities is hard for humans. I mean, cities are built in like 80 different ways with like changing terrain and, and, and changing requirements, like every block, like it's super complicated <laughs> And like a human is built to like the cities are built to like uh, for humans to traverse them. And it's like still tough for them to like deliver and get to everywhere they need to get to. Um, So I think it's going to take a lot of different methods to, you know, uh, make cities completely autonomous and sidewalk robots are going to have their slice of the pie. Uh, And drones are going to have their slice of the pie and fixed wing aircraft like zip lines. They're going to have their slice of the pie, trucks, humans, uh, underground. Everyone's going to have their slice of the pie. Like the big question right now and like all the debate is, 
all right, who's going to get that big slice? <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm super uh, biased towards underground. Obviously, it's like my career. And so I think we'll have a bigger slice of the pie. Um, you know, my word on that probably doesn't mean much, but uh, I, I think sidewalk robots uh, maybe won't have as big of a slice as, you know, theorized five, 10 years ago. Um, uh, drones will have a pretty big piece. Uh, fixing aircraft, I think, will have a much bigger piece than uh, a lot of people think. I mean, that is a really robust system. Um, if they can figure out how to uh, quickly deploy those, uh, then like that's that's going to be a significant piece of it. Um, self-driving cars are going to be a large piece. Uh, Cruise has done a ton of work. They're there, which is crazy. Uh, completely automated self-driving cars, like they just exist, and you can take it. And I like that's one of the things I feel like we don't talk about enough. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think everyone has their slice of the pie. Where what slice that will be? Yeah, we'll we'll see in like five to ten years. <laughs> well, you know, on that subject, it's kind of funny if you think about urban planning is so hard, and the urban planners in most cities today had no idea what cities were going to turn into and the constraints that now are there. And you know, to your point on like my thought in general is the sidewalk robots, they have to exist within the current constraints of poor urban planning. And the cool thing about going underground, it's cool, but also a little bit of um, kind of like weight on your shoulders is nobody has done the underground urban planning. And so as you build out these systems of pipes, how do you think about, you know, what exists, or, you know, you're planning for the next 10 to 20 years, but people will might use things in very different ways in 30, 40 years. And you now have this infrastructure that's going to be static. How are you thinking about essentially the same version of urban planning, but underground? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I don't know if we we have like thought about it that much. I think where we're at right now is, um, you know, as long as you can make the installation of this infrastructure um, cheap enough that you're able to return an ROI on like the five to 10 year scale, um, then we can always make it faster and faster to work with the new paradigm of logistics. It's, it's arguably it's, it's the final frontier of any utility is going underground. It's, it's where you have ubiquitous speed and you can go like, there's no safety concerns after that. Um, nothing's going to get in your way. You can't build in a pipe. So there's not going to be like, Oh, something built in the pipe. We got to change our thoughts. Like you are locked in your own world. Uh, and that's kind of the benefit of it. I think the the number one thing we think about, it's the one thing we can never change is the diameter of the pipe. Um, that was probably the thing that we, we've spent the most time thinking about it. It's the most tricky because you kind of want to, I think this is where a lot of underground, other underground companies have uh, misstepped is there's this want from an engineer side to like capture the whole standard deviation of possible package sizes. <laughs> and you kind of mm -hmm. like got to optimize for most in today's world and know similar to how the internet did like your packet size is going to decrease as the time it takes for you to deliver something decreases, right? Like right now we buy toilet paper in 24 pack rolls because we don't want to have to go to the store every time we need toilet paper. But if you're able to deliver that quickly and in an itemized fashion, you, you know, you're only going to buy like two, three at a time. Um, so that everything is going to like packetize and get smaller and your diameter you need gets smaller. Um, so that's probably from a planning standpoint, that's probably the most we've thought about. Uh, cities have actually done a really good job on the utility side. Um, not great in mapping, <laughs> um, but uh, they have all these systems. Uh, they have a utility coordinator. They're the ones who like think about, okay, you know, let's make sure um, we have everything figured out. And like in, in a lot of American cities, you know, uh, your foreseeable future of utilities is done. We have electric, sewage, water, 
gas, uh, internet. Um, as long as you make sure you're maintaining capacity, that's really all that's going to be down there um, until we, we started thinking about commerce. Uh, so uh, I, there's probably, I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast or, or like you uh, have any ideas of like what we need to be thinking about, but if there's something that I didn't just mention that we need to be thinking about, we probably need to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a really interesting insight on the um, you know just sizes of things that people need going way down. I hadn't thought about that, but you're so right. It's a consumer behavior is based off of what your life looks like and how you know you don't want to go back to the store every other day or pay for shipping three times a week. Um, I never thought about the fact that if you can have something near instantaneous, you can get one at a time. I don't need to order six cases of sparkling water. I can get two cans kind of thing. Very, very interesting insight. The one, you know, the one thing I was thinking about that might be a constrainer thing to think about from like a planning perspective is how you add on. You'd mentioned before you can have parallel pipes, so you can have even going a layer deeper. But what if you want to add additional entry points? So what where your little portals are for unloading um, load of packages. As you build out more of those, do you add on to the pipes or do you just build separate networks and how do they interoperate? Yeah, totally. So so this is the nice thing uh, about building uh, with the current paradigm utilities is this has been figured out. Um, you know, there's uh, what's called, we build the portals on top of junction boxes. Uh, and and you, you're probably, you walk all over junction boxes all the time because that's anywhere there's a manhole cover um, there's a junction box underneath <laughs> and the junction box is like this concrete vault. And, uh, uh, sorry, I think we, we call them junction boxes, but I think they're, they're really called vaults. Um, but so you, you can put in, uh, you know, uh, two pipes on the North end, two pipes on the South end, two pipes West and East. Um, and so that is when we add a portal, we are at the minimum utilizing one of those, uh, uh, ports. Um, and then you can add, if you need to go north, you can add on the north side. If you need to go west, you can add on the west side, south, east. Um, and so that's how it's, it's very, very uh, much like a, a, the way that like train stations develop is like, you really just need a path going through. And then if you need to, you know, add one going perpendicular, you can. If you need to add an extra lane going either way, you can. Um, so that's how you would add to it. You've, it's, this is really cool. I mean, you've thought of so many of the possible, you know, gotchas, and um, there's actually way more current infrastructure that exists that you can leverage than I even expected. What do you think is the What do you think is going to be the hardest part of this? Yeah, I think it's staying. I think it's staying focused on simplicity. Um, I think they, that's probably like what we catch ourselves doing the most is, um, you know, a lot of people have tried to do this and failed. The long history of it. Um, uh, you know, the, the, one of the first, uh, postmaster generals in, um, Canon or CTO is like way more versed in this history. Uh, but one of the first postmaster generals, he, um, uh, he wanted to go completely underground through a pneumatic system and like fought for it super hard. And when they decided not to, because of some lobbying, he resigned. He was like, I, we have to go underground. I don't like, I, we can't go horse and buggy. Like there's going to be way more mail volume than you can ever imagine. And I am like, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> um, so, and then a lot of people have tried since then, but, uh, you know, staying really focused on reducing complexity and making the system as simple as possible. I think like it is cool and, and like you do get a lot of brownie points for making it look cool. Um, and there's some other companies in the space that I think really focus on that. And it is very cool. 
And as an engineer, my heart breaks that we can't like do some of those other systems like pneumatics or magnetic levitation. Um, but like what catches you is, is complexity and in installation, um, complexity and regulation, uh, things breaking underground. Like you just can't have things break on there. So the more that you can push all that to simplicity and, and making as cheap as possible install, uh, that's how someone is going to win uh, this industry. And so for us, it's just like staying focused on that and um, which is tough. But I, I think like one of those missteps is, is where we mess up. Um, maybe also uh, just in the um, idea, not, not the idea maze, maybe like the VC capital maze of like, how do you milestone correctly uh, and get mm-hmm. up to, you know, we're a capital intensive I business. know that maze. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, this is my first time through. So I think like I got to look at myself and say, okay, I don't know this maze. <laughs> and I could see myself getting in a loop where like you're running around the maze and you think you're making progress and you're not. Um, so those are probably the two biggest ways we we fail. You also, you said something very interesting a bit ago around this concept of people building on top. And I think thinking of yourself as a platform where, I mean, look, there's you know thousands of players in the logistics space and the commerce giants. And enabling them to build their own things on top of Pipe Dream makes a lot of sense and is not something I would have intuitively thought about. And that could give you that edge of you being the platform as opposed to trying to own the entire thing end to end. Yeah, totally. Um, and because you know, like delivering something to someone's door is not trivial. <laughs> so thinking that we can go end to end, I, I think uh, any logistics player going end to end has like suffered so many heart. Breaks. And like they're like they have order volume and they're doing really good on the other side. And really the problem is, um, you know, very similar to uh, like global logistics is like just creating some of those fast lanes that reduce costs like uh, the, the cargo carriers um, that really helps global logistics. I mean, it's like I, if I wanted to buy applesauce for my friend across the city, like that's going to be more expensive than buying applesauce that got like shipped from China you know, packaged somewhere else, shipped to my grocery store. Like that's crazy. Um, that's still to this day, 40% of, of logistics cost or that last mile. So I think just like, yeah, add, adding, um, you know, augmenting their current networks and, and just making those cheaper and faster um, is at least for now what's going to be best. Uh, but I also think like, you know, if, if, if you can reduce this cost of last mile, um, that helps my friend who's making applesauce across the city compete with people who are uh, you know, have the the benefits of scale and and reduced costs uh, from a shipping side. Like they can ship a lot quicker and easier. Um, so that makes that a viable business. Uh, and and same with like D 2 C. Like D 2 C drinks uh, are really cool. Like people making new types of drinks and like seltzer and all this stuff is, is super dope. But like near impossible um, to do D 2 C beverage. Because uh, you got to like, okay, I'm going to try to like sell it as a subscription in a bulk. So I only have to ship it once a month and like save shipping costs on that. But uh, if you can do them individually uh, cheaply, like, people will be more likely to try and there'll be like way more products that you have access to. Super similar to like Spotify, right? Like when you started being able to stream music, your access and your appetite for new times of music increased because the friction to try a new song was reduced so much. Mm-hmm. Um same thing with like grocery and like, anyways, I, I could talk about it for a while, but like being like what we could build on top of it, closed rental, circular economy, like all these things become a lot more viable as you reduce the cost of uh, less mile logistics. Um, so excited and for like, reducing costs. 
Yeah, and you're just playing into a bunch of tailwinds anyways and trends like the whole re-commerce, upsell, recycle, uh, hyper-local, direct-to-consumer. There's so many things that all converge, which you're helping to enable. When, um, Where are you launching first and when is the timeline on that? Yeah, uh, a little uh, unsexy exclusive here. Um, we are launching in Petrie Corners, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. Um, that's going to be a demo network. Uh, but that construction has started um, and it should on a construction timeline uh, be done next month. So uh, depending on where engineering is at, we should have an operational network um, sometime in the fall. Wow. That is way sooner than I would have expected. That is <laughs> freaking awesome. I've never it. been to Georgia, it. but I'll come down just so I can see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. We've thought about like, you know, doing, I don't know. We're, we're just like, everyone here is like, like, I don't know. We, we just, we're not big fans of like big parties for our work, but we might do like a little, little something um, for the first delivery, just for the first one. You should just send through a bottle of champagne and somebody get it out at the end and like <laughs> pop it. That would be a fun video. That's a great idea. Oh, that's it. Yeah. We've been trying to figure out like, what do we do? Bottle of champagne is perfect. Especially because it's delicate. You talked about beverages. It's small enough that it'll fit. It'll be like a fun little surprise. I like it. Yeah. Oh, man, if we can get like the vibration down to, we could do like a little champagne flutes, like already packaged. Um, I don't think we're going to get there, but uh, definitely Just a bottle. Pl- <laughs> no one's going to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so awesome. Um, honestly, what you guys are building is such a cool swing. It is um, something that I feel like could totally transform the way we think about you know all forms of commerce, logistics, and cities. Yeah. One question I always like to end with has there been any piece of advice or words of wisdom you've been given in your life that have really stuck with you and are words you live by? I think it's not a phrase, but like we, we talk about a lot here, but like just also my personal life. I think like um, sunken cost bias is one of the bigger killers of quality thinking. Like being able to think clearly is like so many people are on a path and because they spent so much time on that path, it's tough for them to get off because they're like, well, I've sunk so much time into this. And like, it's part of the reason I finished college for no reason was just like, well, I've already spent three years here. So I might as well like finish the fourth. Um, that's probably the thing that like, I think about the most, uh, it's just like trying to fight sunken cost bias. Cause like you can't really fight it. It's kind of an instinct, but you got to remind yourself like, okay, is the sunken cost bias? Like, am I not thinking about this clearly? Cause I'm so biased towards this other answer. Um, there are words I live by. I can't think of them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's a great one. And it's actually one that's very um, apropos for us in the VC world too, because you invest a ton of capital. And also if you're doing early stage investment, usually a ton of time. And then at oh, some point yeah. it's like, do you want to put more capital in a company that may not, you know, probably has gone its path. Uh, but you have this sunk cost fallacy of like, well, if I put three more million dollars, maybe they'll be able to turn it around. So I feel like that's definitely something that we face all the time. Totally, totally. It, in like everything. Like, yeah, uh, it, it's crazy how much it pops up. That's so interesting. I didn't think about that in terms of VC. Um, yeah, yeah, and we actually, as, and that's why I think having a partnership where you're trying to intellectually bounce ideas off of other people really comes into play because um, you get to the point where you might be so personally invested in a company and emotionally attached, but the right decision for the firm is not to put more money in, but you need other people to kind of check you. So I feel like having those checks and balances is very helpful. Totally. Totally. Uh, that is a word I live by. Kill your darlings uh, pops into my head all the time. Um just nice. like, yeah, if, if you're ever like emotionally attached, you probably need outside opinion 
to make a clear decision. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Garrett, this has been a pleasure. I really am excited to hopefully see Pipe Dream live at some point soon. Everyone should definitely check out Garrett's Twitter. He has some amazing videos and some stuff there. And uh, yeah, keep following Pipe Dream Labs. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so fun. Thanks for joining.